Hello and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, PR consultant and freelance writer, tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours owner and host of this podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. This week, I'm joined by Ada Alami, a friend I've met since living here in Marrakesh and contributor to the book, Our Women on the Ground, Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World. I received a copy of the book just days after returning from Israel and Palestine and spent my Eid holiday following Ramadan reading the captivating tales the women contributors told about their experiences in the field. It hit home how different the experiences would be for women reporting in this part of the world versus in Canada where I'm from and have worked in different PR offices. Ada inspires me as she reports on issues that give a voice to those who may not otherwise be heard think women's rights and migrants. So let's listen in as Ida talks about her experiences as a reporter and what stories she's working on. I received my copy of Our Women on the Ground and you're one of the 19 Arab Sahafiat female journalists contributing a chapter to this amazing book um, edited by Zara Hankier about Arab women reporting from the Arab world. Can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to become a journalist? Sure. So I I grew up in Marrakesh in Morocco and I wasn't too much interested in, in, in the news or, or stuff like that growing up. Mm-hmm. But I was always interested in the world and in people. And I think I wanted a career that would allow me to travel and allow me to to meet people and kind of get to know them. And at the same time, I always loved writing. So I felt that journalism would be a good combination of all of this. And having grown up uh, in, in Morocco, I think I was always very aware that I was very privileged and and that I needed to, to, know, to, to tell the world, you know, about other people who didn't, who weren't as lucky as I was or as lucky as other people are. And I think that's why I, I, I'm always writing about the topics I write about, and and I think that's been the where, where my career headed naturally because of all of this. And so, at 18, you realized your dream of leaving Morocco to move to New York City and become a journalist. Um, yeah. And you studied at Columbia University, is that right? Uh, grad school, and I did my undergrad at, at Hunter College in New York. Okay. Um, um, did you work as a journalist in the U.S.? I, I worked. I worked as a production assistant in the U.S. in television. Okay. And then I, I, when I left the U.S., I started writing. Okay. Because I found, like, when I was reading Our Women on the Ground, it was just such a captivating read. I just the chapters were just so fascinating. I couldn't put it down, and the stories that other reporters contributed just made me realize the situations that journalists find themselves in. And one noted just even being a female reporter and the restrictions she faced. And of course, there are some advantages when it comes to some subjects. So I'm just wondering, um, how does reporting in this part of the world differ from in the U.S. where you studied? So I've, I've worked in the U.S. later on in my life mm-hmm. uh, as a journalist. So I do know I kind of had both experiences, and they are very different because 
one thing one thing about reporting in this region is that it's hard for male and female journalists mm-hmm. because of all the press restri- press freedom restrictions and so on. But for female, there's even it's there is even an additional hurdles that come with being a woman in these regions. Even though I think it's hard to be a woman anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> um, how does reporting differ in this part of the world? from in the U.S.? I think it differs for men and women because of all the press restrictions in this part of the world. But at the same time, as women and other contributors to the book have much more descriptive stories mm-hmm. about what it's like to be a woman um, reporting, like the, the photojournalist in, in Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, or the, the journalist in Yemen and, and, and so on. And I think Morocco is a little bit different because I don't feel a difference in Morocco with my male colleagues. So I can't speak about mm-hmm. this too much. I mean, I've reported in other parts of the Arab world, but I think my experience is a bit different from other women in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's because I think I write for uh, American news outlets. So it puts me in a little bit of a different position. Mm-hmm. Um. And you speak about your dear friend, Leila Aloui, in your chapter, devoting her professional life to victims of war, terrorism, and poverty through her lens. And I've known you to take Uh on women's issues in Morocco and justice. So what are the issues that get you out of bed um, and into the field each day? So I've, I've real, like before I really thought that I wrote about everything. And then I realized that I mostly write about gender issues and human rights and issues related to migration and and all of that. And I find that a lot of my stories kind of have all these themes which end up being around religion and human rights and gender dynamics and stuff like that. And I want to say that usually I, I try to really go for people who don't have any access to the media and don't, I mean, I, I, most of my stories focus on the stories that are majorly underreported, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So what types of stories do you feel are underreported in Morocco? Well, Morocco, Morocco is, again, different from the rest of the region in the fact that it doesn't get that much attention from the media. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and, and the state has kind of sold this image of Moroccan exceptionalism where all the media care about sometimes it's just the nice stories about Morocco and the travel stories and and these kind of mm-hmm. orientalist stories that make Morocco very exotic for the rest of the world mm-hmm. and at the same time the the independent press has kind of disappeared in Morocco in the last 20 years uh, so what's left is a few independent journalists that can't cover everything. Mm-hmm. So it becomes easier to kind of do these stories that no one wants to do. And and again, I it's stories I do about migrants in Morocco or uh, women's issues, or I'll find like some feminist movements mm-hmm. that are not really well known, like land rights movements and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm always looking for these kind of stories. So who are some of the people that you've met while doing the migrant stories? Uh, so I, I've done a lot of migrant stories and it's always, I mean, I, like migration is one of the biggest themes of my, mm-hmm. in my work 
and uh, in Morocco, it's either sub-Saharan migrants who, are, who have have been here for a few years trying to make it to Europe and mm-hmm. and kind of end up having to make a life here and and have experienced unspeakable police brutality and things like that, or it's Moroccan migrants in Europe, or mm-hmm. it's uh, Middle Eastern migrants in Europe, or uh, it's Somali migrants in the U.S. So it's it's always I mean it's there's a variety of interesting characters, but kind of similar stories, which are people who have left their homes and are treated not nicely in the places where they've tried to find more safety. Mm-hmm. Why migration, I guess, is what I'm interested in. I think climate change and migration are going to be the two biggest issues in the next um, decades that are coming. Just because... Uh, because of, I mean, you have this constant move uh, of people who are fleeing uh, a set of difficulties, and it's been war for a while. It's going to be climate change uh, soon, and and the idea is that we constantly have to adapt to these changing populations, and mm-hmm. and and migrants to me are the the, the most vulnerable among mm-hmm. among all because. There are vulnerable people everywhere, but migrants are especially vulnerable populations. And we kind of all are migrants, but we all have different privileges. And it depends where you come from. So the, 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 so some are considered expats, others are yeah, exactly. migrants. So it's really, mm-hmm. it feels like the skin color kind of changes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how we, we define migrants. And, 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 and that's why I feel like migrants kind of, in 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 their issues and what they face, kind of tell stories about societies in a very unique way. What changes um, have you noticed in the reporting on migrants? Like, for example, I noticed: like, is there more migration happening in Morocco? Is the situation getting better? Worse? Well, it used to be really terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first moved here, that's one of the first things I noticed is how the media here were demonizing sub-Saharan migrants in Morocco, and there were the narrative was that um, there was insecurity in Morocco because of these, uh, and like there was also the narrative of invasion, very similar to what's happening in the U.S. right now, mm-hmm. and 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 I did notice that it's it's gotten better. Like journalists here are a little bit more sensitive to the topic mm-hmm. and are being more careful about the way they word things and how they talk about criminality among migrants and stuff like that. Uh, but there's still like so many issues uh, with covering migration. Uh, and I mean, one result is that so many people in the in the world rejects migrants and it comes from these narratives that's in the media mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And so how can we change those narratives? What are you... I wish I, I had an answer for that. I think, <laughs> uh, I, I do think that the, the media have to be careful in the way uh, about the depth in which they talk about these issues and taking the time to tell stories and they don't always have negative stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also interesting to talk about positive 
stories from migrants. I recently was in, in a small town in Minnesota, uh, and this town has was uh, won by Trump in 2016, has huge issues with Islam, uh, groups of Islamophobes operating there and like kind of creating this climate of insecurity for Somali migrants. And when I decided to report there, instead of focusing on the white supremacists, I decided to talk about the Somali migrants and what their life was like and kind of write this journal that told these success stories of people who have left, fled civil war and built beautiful lives in the U.S. And these stories need to be told that migrants need to be, need to be humanized. They can't just be mm-hmm. friends and and numbers and and even for example a lot of the stories you read about uh crossing the mediterranean and you have these dramatic trends about how you have a rise in people trying to cross but when you look at numbers there we're talking about a few thousand people it's nothing in, in comparison of mm-hmm. the population of europe so the, there are always these, these ways of of like the meat sometimes in the media trends are overplayed or negative stories are told a lot more than the positive ones. Mm-hmm. So I completely agree. It's the negative that sells, right? And depending on like the agenda of the government or whatnot, it can also exactly. influence what type of stories we're going to hear. And so what motivated you then to move back to Morocco in um, 2009 it was, right? Yeah, late 2009. Uh, it's just that... Uh, as I say in the essays, I I kind of at first wanted a career in the U.S. and then I realized that there were all these American journalists mm-hmm. moving to the our world and having all these wonderful careers and so on. And I thought, okay, they they don't have the language, they don't have the mm-hmm. understanding of the region that I have, and they still manage to do well professionally. And mm-hmm. and I thought. It would be interesting for me to do that because I have so many advantages that they don't have uh, while having gone to the same schools as them and so on. So I thought, okay, I I really need to move back to the region. That's where I belong. Mm -hmm. What about the feminist um, movement? Because here in Morocco, I feel like it's advancing um, the rights and whatnot that women have. And so how has that changed since you've moved back? Uh, I think the issue, again, in a, in a country like Morocco is because men and women don't have enough rights. Mm-hmm. So when you're in that context and you're asking for, uh, you know, for advances on women's rights in a, contest, in a context where humans don't have the rights they're supposed to have, it almost be- become very tricky because um, women's rights are kind of used by the state to promote this tolerant image and so on. And, but at the same time, um, I feel like there are a lot of changes on paper, mm-hmm. but if it weren't from the, for these feminists are, are not part of the state, they are not in the system that kind of do things on their own. Mm-hmm. That's the change I see. What I'm trying to say, sorry, because this was very confusing. What I'm trying to see is that the kind of on the paper change that's promoted by the state in terms of 
laws being passed and so on is not the real change that I see. The real change that I see is from grassroots movements, like land rights movements or movements like that of women actually taking matters into their own hand and actually pushing for change. Mm -hmm. And what are the land right movements that you're referring to? So the land right movements, uh, so Morocco has all these tribal lands Mm -hmm. uh, all over the country. And uh, so Morocco being a Muslim country with a penal code based on religion, women inherit half of what what men inherit. So siblings don't inherit the same. Mm -hmm. And in terms of land rights for these tribal lands, uh, there was a huge movement, and it's the biggest feminist movement country that asked for equal rights. And they're slowly getting there. And once that will be set in stone, there will be the first women in Morocco to get equal inheritance, Uh, which is something that we I can't even foresee happening for Moroccan women in the near future at all. Really? So for example, if you had a brother, um, you would inherit 50% of what he would inherit. Yes. Wow. And, yeah. Hmm. That's impressive. Okay. Okay, just a quick time out, because if you're keen to explore Morocco, let me tell you about SunTrails, a private tour operator based in Marrakesh. I've had the pleasure of being both a paying customer on a holiday through the south of Morocco, but also just traveling with Chris, because he is a friend after all. That aside, Chris is genuinely passionate about discovering the hidden gems dotting the country, and meeting people like architects and musicians undertaking interesting initiatives. He then puts all of this together in an itinerary for guests who are looking for more than just a standard tour of Morocco. He's been on the podcast twice, so if you want to find out more, check out episode 1 and episode 19, or get in touch with me via mandyandmorocco.com and I'll happily put you in touch. And do you have any travel plans to go, like, you were in Haiti earlier, um, that was actually like almost a year ago now that you were in Haiti? Uh, yeah, I, I went twice for for a while last year, yeah. Yeah, it's flying by. And what issues you're, yeah. were you reporting on in Haiti? Same migration. Migration. It was migration and women's rights, yeah. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, so I did a lot of, of work into the, the anti-Haitianism in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to understand why... Um, the Dominican Republic was treating the Haitians the way it was, and that was like reading in depth report. And then I, and then I also again I wanted to to, to I mean I was part of a bigger project that was um, that I worked with other reporters, but my own work was really focused on change makers instead of, because Haiti is also is I mean. All the coverage of Haiti is always about earthquakes and natural mm-hmm. disasters and, and horrible things. And it's actually one of the most interesting countries I've ever visited. And there's so much more to Haiti than natural disasters. And yeah. I kind of wanted to channel that into my reporting. Well, I think that's what's so important about reporting these days is that it's not just about reporting the hard news. Like, yes, when, you know, natural disasters happen, that needs to be told. But also finding the the human stories um, 
from the people Absolutely. of that land. So even, you know, in Morocco, like what you're doing with the women's rights, I can imagine like when you're reporting on the land ownership issues, are you, like, what types of stories are you hearing in yeah. that regard? Yeah, so for, for land ownership, it was, uh, I yeah, I met with these women who are leading the movement. And are they from an association or are they just um, independently? No they're just, no, they're just women who grew up in the farm country who some of them can't even read or write, but yeah. who know they want equal ownership. That's <laughs> and amazing. And let it go. Besides like a reporter like you who comes along and meets with them, is there any way else that they can voice their concerns? Well, what, one thing that I noticed with this story, for example, is that scholars were paying a lot of attention to it. Mm-hmm. But as it, it's also the case with scholars, is that it's hard <laughs> for the, the public to understand what yeah. they're talking about. And it's sometimes hard for a journalist to pick up their work uh-huh. because the scholars don't know how to make sometimes their work newsworthy for journalists. Yeah. But what I noticed is that after I, I wrote the story, I, I, I've seen a lot of coverage in Morocco after that. Mm-hmm. And one of the toughest challenges of that story was kind of turn all these scholarly work into a story and kind of make it understandable for the public. Mm-hmm. And that's a story I'm particularly proud of because I had to read so many academic journals and research to kind of understand exactly what the issue was and how big the movement was. And then to kind of make it into a story that people could relate to. And how and big? I think, well, sorry. Yep. sorry. And how big is the movement? Uh, it's thousands of women across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, experts of uh, women's rights movements in Morocco say that it's the biggest feminist movement in Morocco. Wow! And it's not something that just touches like rural areas versus urban or like wealthy versus yeah, it's, like poor it's families all rural areas because it's all in, on tribal lands okay yeah wow so i yeah. can imagine even just the challenge of getting to these people we also you know right 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 right, right. and yeah. also unfortunately uh, most of the journals in morocco is, is focused on casa casablanca and rabat so mm-hmm. Whenever stories are outside of that area, they've become smaller and smaller stories in the media. Yeah, that's true. There's, I was reading um, about a, um, a filmmaker who debuted a film at Toronto Hot Docs, and it's about the, mm-hmm. um, the movement The Silver Mine in Imadir. And yes. again, it's like you yes. really need to, um, yeah. to search for these stories, even as a... A, cons- a news consumer, you have to go, you know, to like almost like a documentary or a film to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to understand this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your chapter in Our Women on the Ground, you note that you were proud to be Arab following comments about the Arab Spring and freedom from dictatorship was near. Um, where did this sense of pride come from? And do you still feel this way? Because I think before... Uh, before the Tunisian revolution, the narrative was that the, all, I mean, these countries could never um, stand uh, stand up for themselves and kind of, because we, we all have like this colonial history and then after, 
after the independence from France and other countries, then it became, these people became under the rule of dictators and so on. So there was always this kind of perception that things could never get better for us. Mm -hmm. And then Tunisia happens and it's like, oh, we actually, it's not just me that thinks like that. There are like millions of us that have this aspiration for democracy and, and so on, because you have to, to remember that before 2011, especially in Tunisia, for example, no one could speak freely about what they thought. Mm -hmm. So this kind of feeling that actually we all are united by this common uh, belief in freedoms and, 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 and wanting a better future for us and mm -hmm. the next generations kind of brought us all together. And it was a really incredible feeling and it changed my perception uh, of a lot of things. Yes, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed reading yeah. the book. I loved the it. Are, it was yeah. such a page turner. And also, like I was in Israel and Palestine during Ramadan. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. having read the book like a few days after returning, it just was Same. even more fresh in my mind of like, oh, and that's how I realized yeah. like there are really these differences between um, the struggles that I think journalists in North America have to deal with and the struggles what women just reporters in general have to, to yeah. deal with because I've worked on the newsroom side. So when yeah, I was in exactly. Canada. So. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to your reporting and um, thanks thank for you. chatting and hopefully you'll get off to the beach soon as well. Yes. Thank you very much for your interest in this. <laughs> thank you. No, it was really good. Honestly, the book was very eye opening. So um, I'm going to link right. it in the podcast so people can purchase it. And I'll also link to your website as well. Oh, Excellent. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Ada. See you soon. So see you in Marrakesh. Yeah. Take in Marrakesh. care. Cheers. Bye. 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 If you're a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilles tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of my favorite things. But don't just take it from me. Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour on its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a CH. All of our tours are private and bespoke, so we take you only to the places that interest you. But for now, it's time to say see you in two weeks when I'll be back in the studio after a short break. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch via my website, mandyandmorocco.com. And if you're a fan of Why Morocco, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Mandy in Morocco so I can be sure to thank you for helping me share my love of Morocco. Okay.